preaching of God's Word is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. <coughs> 2 Timothy chapter 2. Last week we began a series on the doctrine of conversion. Whereas we do not pretend to be exhaustive in all that can be said, we hope to be nonetheless full in touching on the main things. And here we come in our consideration of 2 Timothy chapter 2. And for the sake of context, we'll read verses 24 through 26. Paul is here exhorting Timothy to fulfill his office. You'll see what a great honor it is to have that office. Verse 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. So you notice in context, Paul is exhorting Timothy, a young minister, as he says in verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and so on. And he's reminding him of this high calling and to be giving himself diligently to the carrying out of that calling, which is not to be belligerent. And this is something that particularly younger ministers need to be mindful of and younger elders and younger Christians in general because there can be a zeal that has a degree of knowledge and yet which is not tempered with the needed grace to manage all things faithfully. So you'll notice Paul says, the servant of the Lord must not strive. What a word. But be gentle unto all men apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Is it not easily evident in our lives, sadly so, how quickly when we stand opposed, we get all riled up and wish to push back. We become cunning and crafty and think to get ours in and to win the battle and so on. And when a minister has that happen in sin, he loses sight of several things, not least of which he does not fight for his own name and honor, but rather he speaks, preaches in the name of and for the sake of Christ's honor. Moreover, it is often then neglected that he is but an instrument and means that the Lord is pleased to use, when so pleased indeed, to bring about that great change needed. It was McShane who said that a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. So strive then to be holy above everything else. Why is that the case? We read elsewhere that the wrath of man does not bring to pass or accomplish the purpose of God. And yet so often we feel ourselves vindicated because we're stirred up about a holy issue. Well, here you'll see that Paul is exhorting Timothy 
to remember his place and to remember his use and to remember what is most needed is not winning the argument. But what is most needed is, as Paul says, that God in his mercy would give repentance. What an expression that is. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So the text identifies that it's not ultimately Timothy or any other servant of the Lord, minister, elder, or otherwise, who is the ultimate cause to win one to Christ and bring them out of their sin, but it is as God Himself gives the grace that would convert one. Notice you can see the elements of repentance so clearly, give them repentance, but also faith, not just you know, saying or confessing, but acknowledging of the truth, claiming it, embracing it as one's own. So notice what God would give are the two preeminent, as it were, activities of the soul that takes place when one is converted. Faith and repentance. Paul is reminding Timothy of the fundamental need if ever he should see one soul converted, it will only be insofar as the Lord adds His blessing in divine grace to convert that soul. And notice the benefit that comes of it. That they then are recovered out of the snare of the devil. They who are taken captive by Him at His will. There's much that comes from this text, brethren. A call to ministers particularly. Also, for us to remember that we should view everyone outside of Christ as in a damnable estate ensnared by Satan. It's worth asking yourself that before we move on. For each of you will know someone unconverted. And you ought to think of yourself, and think of them rather, and ask yourself, do I see them as bound up by Satan, and yet willfully bound up by Satan, gladly bound up by Satan, longing to remain bound up by Satan? Do you realize that? That anyone who's unconverted is in that state should remember this as well, that if you are converted, you were in that state. Gladly, wickedly so, bound up by Satan. But the thing we wish to focus on, most relevant to our series, is this fact that God must work graciously in the lives of sinners if ever they should be converted. So this brings us, as we'll think a little bit, to that relationship between what we know as effectual calling and regeneration and the exercise of faith and repentance and conversion. And so theologically we realize, and the Bible speaks to this again and again as we'll see, that conversion, as we saw last week, is the whole and entire turning of a sinner to God in Christ. Which then means we embrace Christ as our Savior by faith, we repent of our sins, and endeavor after, by the grace of God, new obedience. So we're converted. We're turned. We were indeed in league with the world and with sin and Satan. We were following after, as Paul says, the prince of the power of the air. We were fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. And indeed, we're children of wrath even as others. That is 
the universal state of everyone who is not a believer in Christ. Covenant child, minister of the gospel, it doesn't matter. If unconverted, they are dead in their sins. And yet, as we saw, God calls them to be converted. Turn, repent, be converted, trust the gospel. And so this has led some to think, well, it lies within man's power to convert himself. And really, all we need to do is to present enough of the facts of the truth and articulate them clearly enough so that just as in some sort of speculative philosophical notion, they would see it and say, oh, I get it now. Or with some aspect of mathematics, if we explain it well enough, they'll eventually come along and embrace it. But if we understand what's being said in the Scriptures, what we need to realize this is this, that the more that one who is dead in their sins understands the truth, if God does not change their souls, they will more despise the truth that is presented to them because by nature they are dead in their sins and they despise the truth of God. They may be content with a form of godliness, but they will never be content with the reality thereof because they are, as we saw a bit last week, at enmity with God. Will God be praised that He does not consign all of His enemies the just damnation each one deserves, but he rather gives such grace as is here indicated that would then cause them to believe and repent to be converted. So we wish to look at this required grace exercised by God if ever one should be converted in three ways. Firstly, looking at God's renewing grace precedes conversion. Secondly, that God's renewing grace enables conversion. And thirdly, that God's renewing grace results in conversion. So these three things, God's renewing grace, firstly then, precedes conversion. Last week we thought a little bit about what conversion was. One who loved himself, loved his sin, loved the world, loved all of that sensuality and so on. And though may love religion, does not love God, does not love Christ. Well, if ever one should be turned, converted, from what they are to be something entirely different in this realm, they must be changed by God. So let us see, quite simply, that no unconverted man has the power himself to do this great work. Not one. So we read elsewhere that neither can the leopard change his spots, so neither can a sinner turn to God of his own strength. Well, you'll notice that it's here in the text. They're opposing themselves, and it's only if God will give them repentance that they would then acknowledge the truth and escape from the snare of Satan. Notice we've referenced this already just speaking, but see it for yourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, this most solemn description of those who are outside of Christ. Paul says in verse 1, "...you hath he quickened 
who were dead in trespasses and sins. Brethren, we wish to be as charitable as as possible in this, and we desire to think the best of our brethren who disagree on this point because we hear them pray, and they pray in a way that acknowledges this. No one prays in the church of Christ, God, let these who love the truth love you more. They pray rather, open their eyes, give them life. But we need to understand something. Theologically, doctrinally, there are many in the church who deny verse 1 of chapter 2. How so? Here Paul says that sinners are dead in trespasses and sins. He doesn't say they're close to dead. He doesn't say they're comatose. He doesn't say they have a great malady that is hindering their full ability for self-realization or religion or whatever else. He says they're dead. Now, of course, they're not dead physically. That's why he says they are dead in trespasses and sins. It's a spiritual death. It's a death which is the absence of any principle of spiritual life. What this means is fundamentally that they have not power to bring themselves to life. They're dead. We would be as sane as those who hold this doctrinal error if we went to a corpse and said, help yourself out. It makes no sense because there's no principle of physical life in a corpse. It's dead. has no life. Spiritually, men outside of Christ are dead in their sins. And we must come to see that. It doesn't mean they don't have the use of their faculties. Some are among the most uh, uh, enriched in uh, thought and knowledge. Their ability to think and reason and so on is quite clear. They write books. They lead talks, all of these things. They are business executives and educated men and women. We don't deny that in the least. But none of their faculties are ever with any influence of spiritual life used. Never one thought, never one word with any sense and semblance of love to God in Christ. There's not a seed in them that is just awaiting to be awakened and nurtured because they are dead in their sin. Paul explains this. It's not that they're inactive. Rather, they're quite active. Because spiritual death is not inactivity. Spiritual death is activity in all manner of wickedness. This is why Paul says, "...where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air." the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This is every descendant of Adam, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who was supernaturally conceived, dead in their sins. Think for a moment what that entails. Spiritual death shows itself in detesting God. So it's not a neutral state. It's not a restful state. It's rather a state of opposing God, denying God. Now, people do it differently. 
They can do it in Orthodox churches and yet still oppose God because they will not submit themselves to Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. They can do it in other forms of religion, false though they may be, and be very diligent in fastings and wakings and other such activities. They can put ashes on their forehead. They can burn all sorts of candles and incense. They can observe all number of days. It doesn't matter. Though there's activity, think of for a moment, all of that activity is opposed to God and His revealed will. And it's opposed to Christ. So they stand as enemies to God. Paul says as much in the book of Romans explicitly. So think for a moment what wickedness deserves of God. What do wicked rebels deserve? You know, in our world where we have every sort of person calling every other sort of person, someone who's committed treason and other such things, And if one is pointing their finger saying treason to another, they're implying there ought to be some sort of judgment leveled against that person, right? And so this is why that's such a fancy and popular uh, trend today to call every politician treasonous, and this is treasonous, and that's treasonous, and so on, because it has the weight of saying they should be judged and set aside and imprisoned and whatever else, who knows? Think for a moment what goes on in sin. The image bearer of God employs all of his faculties against the one whose image he bears. He is committing cosmic treason. Every sin is a treasonous act against God, the God of heaven and earth. Now, we would be the first to say that earthly governments do and even may often fail and stand in need of correction and even lawful disobedience. But think for a moment whom the sinner opposes. God who is most good, who is only good, who is only worthy of praise and love and adoration, and men in their wickedness despise Him They may put on a happy face. They may put on clean clothes. They may carry themselves in respectable and civil ways and even religious ways. But if you peer deep down, you'll see one who hates God and is God's enemy. What does a wicked enemy deserve but punishment and judgment? Here's the point. God is under no demand to give any person this grace that is required to be converted. What every sinner deserves is God's execution of justice against that sinner. That's what's deserved. So when we start to think about this truth that God's renewing grace precedes conversion, it starts to make us realize how much, how powerfully we should feel that we live and exist solely by the mercy and grace of God. There's nothing we can do to qualify ourselves for it. There's nothing we can do to get God's attention and say, therefore, I'll show it to you. It's not the Roman Catholic blasphemy that says, do what in you lies and God will see it and make up for it and give you something in response. None of that is the way that one obtains this grace. It rests exclusively in the hands of the One 
against whom every sinner is warring. We emphasize this to make it so clear to us how desperate every sinner is for unmerited, undeserved grace if ever they should be converted. And yet, brethren, here's the wonder. When he converts a sinner, he does not convert one who has done better than others. He does not convert one who is worthier than others. He converts one by giving them grace that they do not deserve. Think for a moment how Christ speaks of this in John's Gospel in chapter 6. John chapter 6 at verse 37. Christ says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And he continues the discourse against the Jews who are murmuring. And he says in verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and will raise him up at the last day. Notice two things in these two verses. The absolute sovereignty of God. All, verse 37, that the Father giveth me shall come to me. His election precedes all of this. And all whom we've chosen will indeed come. But notice how related in verse 44 it says, No man can come to me except what happens first. The Father which hath sent me draw him. If there is not the preceding drawing, there is not the following and attendant conversion. God's renewing grace precedes the sinner's exercise of faith and repentance. This does not mean that we should not earnestly implore sinners to repent and believe the Gospel. We see that in the Scriptures. It does, however, inform us to realize that only they in whom God works beforehand will repent and believe the Gospel. God's grace must precede the sinner's exercise of faith. But secondly, God's renewing grace enables conversion. And this can help us start to make sense of a few things. So the one it precedes, so it must go before if ever a sinner will be converted. But what happens when God gives grace? If God will peradventure give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Well, what happens when God gives such grace as draws them to Christ, is that He gives them life. Christ speaks of it in somewhat analogous ways when He says that He opens their eyes that they may see. Notice in John's Gospel again, chapter 3, a very familiar portion of Scripture I trust to us when Christ is speaking to Nicodemus and He says in verse 5, except a man or rather in verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you see this proceeding. What's happening? He's giving the functional use of the faculties in a gracious way. Before they were blind to spiritual things, but now he's giving them the ability to see 
spiritual things. He sees now the kingdom of God. He understands it not just as a doctrine which any unregenerate person can understand. It does not take the grace of regeneration to become an orthodox theologian. It does not take the grace of regeneration to subscribe to faithful confessions of faith. That simply takes the ability to say, this Word of God is rightly represented by this confession of faith. That doesn't take regeneration. That simply takes the right use of reason. But to perceive the spiritual riches of Christ, the beauties of grace, the glory of salvation, not just as an orthodox doctrine, but as it were one's life, that requires the grace of regeneration. To see, in verse 5, to enter into the kingdom of God. Notice, God is the one who gives. By what? By the new birth. And so Christ says, except a man be born again, or born from above. This is where we get the notion of regeneration. So, you think of the genealogies that are recorded in the Scripture where one begets another. Where one generation is leading to another generation. A generation is a a, a group of people who have been born roughly at the same time, in the same era. And so they've been brought forth to live in this world. They've been generated. But here we're speaking of the doctrine of regeneration. The new life, the spiritual life, which is not brought to pass by the activity of physical things, but is brought to pass by the Spirit of God. Notice verse 6 of John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Notice what's happening. We talked about God's renewing grace preceding conversion. But what happens when God gives that renewing grace is that it enables one to see and to enter into the kingdom of God. And so it's not just that it has to proceed. The reason it has to proceed is because it gives life to one who is dead. So we saw, for instance, in our first point, that all sinners are dead in their sins. They have not the ability to exercise their souls, as it were, to take so much as a motion toward God in truth. There's no prayer that is ever moving them to God. There's no uh, you know, self-denial that is doing anything to qualify them for heaven. It's rather that God must be the first mover in this. That He must give grace so that they, receiving the gift of life, may then exercise their souls to lay hold of Christ. Notice in John chapter 1, the same doctrine is set forth once again, most clearly, when it speaks, of course, of verse 11, Christ came, into this, uh, came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And we say, wait, you know, they believed on His name. Yes, but verse 13, which were born, 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice, they're believing the exercise of faith, that preeminent trust that is the display of conversion. I lay hold of Christ who is freely offered to me is the consequence of God's preceding grace whereby God is giving them spiritual life to embrace Jesus Christ. So one thing this reminds us is it's not God believing. It's not God exercising faith or repentance. It's the sinner exercising faith and repentance. But the only way that the sinner is able to do that is by the Lord God, by His Spirit, renewing him, giving him life, so that now he may believe the Gospel. So in other words, it's not inconsistent to say, you must believe the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it should awaken the sense of, then I am at the mercy of God. Because if He does not move me, I will not be moved. You must believe the Gospel, but I cannot believe the Gospel apart from His grace. What happens when this truth grips us is it leads us to yearn and cry out, O God, have mercy upon me. For if you do not, I will never believe. And someone says, well, that's just you know, cleverness at work because really the person can't do that. You know, he can't really cry out to God for mercy. Well, it's true, he cannot of himself. But remember, God uses the means of His Word, of conviction, of the fear of hell, of the hope of heaven, of the guilt and the vileness of sin, of the beauty of Christ, to woo and draw His people in which thing He is working in them mightily by His grace. So sometimes the Scriptures speak from the side of what's going on by man. He repented and believed the Gospel. And other times the Scriptures speak about what's going on in the backward scene, in the behind the scenes of God gave them repentance. But what happens as we're seeing is when one believes the Gospel, it's because God worked before in and through them enlivening them to embrace the Gospel. This ought to cause us in our own personal reflection, if those who are believers indeed, to consider that were it not for God at first working in our hell-deserving souls, it would not matter. Yea, it would not matter if Christ Himself preached to us. Because left to our own, we would never embrace the Gospel. Is it not striking that Christ preached to multitudes and yet many of the multitudes never came? It's not because Christ was a poor preacher. It's not because He you know, struggled with thought and so on. He was perfect in all of His ways. What it's showing is the abject enmity that's bound up in the heart that they will not come Yea, to the best of preaching, by the best and the incarnate Word of God Himself, unless the Spirit of God works within the heart previously. When the Spirit works, what is it He does? He gives the gift of faith. Notice again John 1, as many as received Him. Verse 13, which were born 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, thirdly, God's renewing grace results in conversion. This is important because some would say, well, we grant it, we understand it, God must be gracious first. But here's the rich of God, riches of God's grace. He's gracious to everyone, and He gives them the ability, but some of them just, you know, refrain from exercising that grace given, and so they die in their sins. What a puny view of God that is. What an idolatrous view of God that is. To make God who is omnipotent and powerful to sort of dish out this ineffective thing that really leaves no one with true ability to come and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, but somehow strengthens their faculties so now they get to choose. No, it's not this at all. When God draws, they come. When God opens the eyes and they see, they enter. That's the continued message of all of Scripture. God's grace in salvation is effectual. He gives grace. And in that grace, He draws to Christ. Think of what Christ said, John 6.37, All that the Father gives Me shall come to Me. It's not most of them whom the Father gives Me will come. It's not the overwhelming majority of them, but all of them will indeed come. How will they come? By the Father drawing them to Himself. In other words, when His saving grace is applied and is enlivening the sinner and opens their eyes and gives them that spiritual principle of life, they will come most willingly. We sing of this in the Psalms. We speak of the day of His power and a willing people shall come to Him. That's the work of God's grace. It is, in this way, irresistible. Now, it's true, there are common operations of the Spirit, convictions of certain sorts, and even knowledge of certain sort, whereby it's proper even to say they're resisting God. They're resisting His revealed will. They're resisting His convicting work. But when we come to the point of saying God is drawing a sinner in effectual grace, there's no resisting that. But they are made to come most sweetly and willingly to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to them in the Gospel. When they are born, again, they are born indeed. They are given life so that they embrace that Savior who is held forth to them. Paul says that if God gives them repentance, it will be to the acknowledging of the truth they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Notice in a similar vein, 1 Thessalonians 1, so illustrative, we fear to ex- overuse the passage, but it's so helpful on understanding the work of God's grace. Notice verse 4 of chapter 1, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, that's related to John 6.37, all the Father gives me will come. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, which if it had, you surely could have withstood, but rather in power 
and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. What's the difference? Paul preached to many. And some, to some it was only in word. The same words preached, yet not with the power of the Holy Spirit working within their hearts, giving them life, renewing their souls. And so when that was withheld by God's Spirit, the renewing work of His grace, then it was that the same word of the Gospel was in word only. But oh, the blessing that is known when His Spirit comes with power and renews a soul so that the same word preached is joined with, as it were, the mighty hand of God's Spirit. And life is given so that now the sinner who hears comes most willingly to embrace Jesus Christ. That's what happens when God's saving grace is given to a sinner. They come gladly, willingly to embrace Jesus Christ. They see and they enter in. They taste and see that God is good. They choose Him. We should have no hesitation in saying a sinner chooses God. A sinner chooses Christ. So long as we understand that their choosing is the consequence of His grace proceeding. Sinners choose Christ. But they choose Him because God first graciously chose them and worked within them. When God gives this grace, the people come most willingly. Well, as we think on this, we ought to be mindful, if you're a believer, that that means God worked graciously in you. Now open that up just a little bit to consider it. Let's say what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean He worked in you because you were better than anyone else. It doesn't mean He worked within you because you were smarter than others. Or you had your act together. It doesn't mean that He worked within you because you were really earnest and others weren't. It doesn't mean He worked within you because you come from a better pedigree than others come from in their background. He worked in your life because by the sovereign mystery of election, He set His love upon you and said, this one will be born again to embrace Jesus Christ, my Savior. For no merit that was already at work or would come later on. His grace to the one who believes is founded exclusively upon His grace. Sometimes people think to themselves, well, is that really love? You know, you know, is it really love if someone's not drawn to me out of something that I am? Some qualifying thought, you know, sometimes women can think this, you know, you know they love me because I'm pretty, men because I'm strong and I'm diligent, whatever else. But what we're saying, and more importantly, what the Bible's saying is God surveys the children of men and He finds no beauty in them. Period. None. There's sin. There's that which is repulsive to Him. And yet, here's the wonder of His grace. He has graciously chosen to set His love upon rebels. And in that love, 
to give them grace to convert them that they may be transformed and become beautiful, become lovely, become more like unto Himself. When we understand this rightly, we will be left with the thought, why me? Not why not so-and-so, or why shouldn't He have chosen me? But when we understand both the wonder of God who is glorious and we who are nothing, and when we add to that the fact that we are sinners corrupt and defiled, we should pause and come under this thought, I of myself have no claim upon God. Whatever claim I have upon Him is because He of pure, unmixed, unalloyed grace has set His love upon me. But see, brethren, here's where the wonder then and the delight of such love comes into our encouragement. Because His love isn't founded upon some condition that you fulfilled, which you then could easily fail in subsequently, it is founded upon His grace and is sincerely given to you and envelops you and provides to you all that is needed for this life and the life to come. His love being by grace is on a surer foundation than if it were by your merit. Because His grace is perfect. His grace is without fault. And in that He set His love upon us graciously assures us that we shall ever enjoy His love now and always. Brethren, it should also lead us to pray. We need to pray, yes, as we'll see in our series, that God would raise up means and provide men to preach the Gospel and books and tracts and other efforts to share the Gospel to men and women, to children, to grandchildren, to friends, to co-workers, and that we need to undertake that responsibility to speak a word in season. All of that's true. But above, before, through, and after all of that activity, we need to be those who are earnestly beseeching the Lord for His grace to give life to those that are dead. Here's the great example of that. We read it in Ezekiel 36. The blessedness of conversion. And then it says, verse 37, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. We need to be people who understand the grace that's required, but also be those who understand that the Lord uses the means and preeminently the means of prayer. That He would hear our prayers. And we can step back and wonder at a great mystery that the Lord makes known to us. When we think of these things, we need to realize God has ordained the end, who it is that will be converted to the glory of Christ, but He's also ordained the means. The means that will be employed. Prayers offered, Bible read, sermons preached. So if you zoom out for a moment and see yourself as you are when you pray, a part of that activity of the means of grace, here's what you'll see. God is employing me to bring about, in accordance to His divine will, what He's purposed to bring to pass. What a privileged prayer becomes. 
when we see ourselves as those who by His grace are so ordered to be the means He uses to move heaven and earth. Do you remember Daniel praying and while he was in captivity? He's praying for understanding and praying to understand all of these things and what happens. An angel comes from God and answers him. All of these things need to be seen in this way. When we're praying, God is at work ordaining these things, or rather having ordained these things to bring them to pass so that we can say this. It is proper to say, if there's no prayer and no preaching, there's no conversion. It's wrong to say that I of my own accord bring about such things But it's also wrong to say, my prayer is meaningless. Why is that so? Because God has ordained that prayer be offered and that He then answer that prayer to convert sinners. And so God is bringing us into that means and making us a means to seek out the salvation of sinners. And so this is why Christ gives crowns to His people Because He's crowning their labors. But this is also why Christ's people take the crowns from off their heads and put it at the feet of Christ. Because they see so plainly that what He enabled them to do for His glory was indeed graciously enabled of them. And so they give all the glory to Christ. What a beautiful picture of the workings of God's grace. And so, brethren, pray in hope. Pray in diligence. Pray for these things that God would be pleased to give that grace needed that a sinner would be converted. Let me close by addressing someone who may be rather working certain details out. They say, not only do I hear you, Pastor, about the fact that to be converted there must be grace, and without the grace one won't be converted, but I'm starting to see myself as unconverted. And now I'm lost saying, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do if it is that I'm unconverted and I can do nothing to qualify myself, nothing to launch myself unto God? Well, I would say this. You should see first and foremost that you have absolutely no help, no hope in anything you do. What happens sometimes is a sinner gets convicted, some display and exposure of sin, whether heinous or not, and they become overwhelmed and say, I'm I'm condemned. And then they immediately set upon reading the Bible, praying prayers, getting diligent, reading books, listening to sermons, all of which on one level is right insofar as it's exposing them to the means of grace, but is often used wrongly because fundamentally what they're doing is saying, I'm going to fill my hands with so many costs that I can then bring to God and say, now convert me. Look at all that I've done. When in fact what the sinner needs to do is cast himself upon the means of grace, despairing of any qualifying work of his own doing, and saying, God, I am resolved in Your mercy to die before the means of grace, appealing to You for mercy, crying out, Save me, Lord, I perish. Someone says, well, you know, I'm a bit clever and I I don't know if that's totally how it works. Well, read your Bibles and you'll see it's precisely what happens. God's sovereignty exposes us for the hopeless condition we're in. 
But it also then causes us to cast ourselves down and say, God, You alone can save. And so I implore You, save me. Say, okay, well what happens when that passes? Well, it may be the case that such an emotional fervor overtakes one and it does pass. But when God is at work, this is what happens. He brings them never to cease seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, crying out to Him. So here's the counsel to give to someone. Despair of yourself. Despair of yourself more than you think you need to despair. Despair of your religious actions, your Christian actions. Put no weight of your soul upon any of them. But rather, empty yourself. Take up the promises and start pleading them. Crying out to God. Acknowledging the deficiency that you're pleading promises that you have no faith to believe except He gives it. And what you'll find is happening is all of the burden then by His grace is being cast upon God. That's where the sinner needs to be. Now fundamentally, that work of grace will never come to pass apart from God's grace. This is the way the Lord works. To make men conscious of their sin, conscious of the despair of self, and seeing that their hope lies in God being merciful to them. This then is where the sinner needs to reside. Not visit. Not vacation. Not spend some length of time there, but to reside. Residing before the Lord, appealing to Him for His mercy. And oh, the happy issue that comes when by His grace He brings that to fruition and gives life so that plea of concern becomes a plea ultimately of faith. Well, brethren, here's the required grace that God would give life. Let us ever seek that He would manifest that grace in the lives of our own congregation and others as well to see sinners converted. Would you stand with me for prayer?